0: Welcome to Case by Case. This is a podcast brought to you by Luke Zadkovich and Callum Chain. We're here in, in person today, Callum. How are you? I'm very good, Luke. Very good. Very happy to be here. Good, good. Yeah. And I'm excited today.
1: We're, we're in a studio. We're in, we're in a London podcasting studio. Yeah, this
0: is cool. Too
1: many cameras for my liking, but... <laughs> and I'm, I'm not sure how many people in suits they've seen come through their doors. I think usually the podcasts are perhaps of a slightly more modern... Um, angle than ours
0: i think that's fair to say i uh, i'll confess i got a few looks as i walked through the the foyer here in uh, in hoxton now more exciting than all of that um we've got a guest on today we have jim bladen from the north of england I club welcome jim can you hear us
2: yes i certainly can thanks luke and uh callum for inviting me
0: Great. Yeah. Look, well, welcome to the podcast. We're really looking forward to getting into the case today with you. Um, but just before we do, I thought I'd uh, say a few words. Jim's a consultant at the North of England PI Club. Um, he's been at the North since 2013, I think, focused primarily on FD&D. Um, was telling us earlier that uh, enjoys getting involved in drafting arbitral submissions and um, all of that fun stuff. Uh, and Jim's got um, quite an interest in maritime law and its development and um, been delighted by uh, the, the amount of contact we've had with Jim over cases related to the podcast and feedback and what have you. So to actually get you on board and to be able to listen to some of your insights on a case is, is great. We're, we're really, really pleased to have you on.
1: Thank you very much. If, if you don't mind me saying, Jim, you always, have a, you always have an interesting point on the cases that we're doing. Some 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 interesting reference to a previous case or arbitration award. You seem to have an encyclopedic knowledge of, the, of all of the maritime law that comes out. So I'm, I'm very interested to, to chat through this one with you.
0: Yeah, we've got a good one. We've got a good one today. Um, it, there's quite a few issues in this. It's a, an arbitration decision. So um, as we've had previously when dealing with some of the uh, the maritime arbitration cases. It's um, anonymous, so we don't know the parties involved or the arbitrators or what have you, but we've got quite a detailed case note here. This is London Arbitration 29 of 2022 um, and it covers some some good territory where we're going to touch on charter party issues, particularly speed and performance claims, um, hull fouling, redelivery issues. We've got the BIMCO piracy clause to touch on as well and there's a tug assistance aspect to it at the end. I'm not sure if we'll be able to get to all of those issues today, but let us see how we go. Yeah, it's one of
1: those it's one of those cases where there was basically a balance of account at the end of the charter period and each side said that they were entitled to one, you know. Either, either they were entitled to some money back or they weren't. And then you have to go through as ever the statement of account or the final hire statement and work out where the differences have, have arisen. And it seems that in this one, a large part of it was the speed and
0: performance claim. I dare say, Jim, you've come across a few speed and performance claims in your time.
2: I certainly have. And, uh, yeah, this, this one's a, uh, an interesting one. It's, it probably represents quite a typical example of these sorts of, uh, disputes. Uh, it's obviously got a few twists and turns in
0: there. Yeah, it's interesting that point because we don't know who the arbitrators were on this decision, but it was a three-person tribunal for a relatively small claim. Reading completely between the lines, this wasn't uh, expressed in it, although um, there were there were some comments at the end about um, the speed and performance claims and, and how they shaped up. Uh, but it came through to me that the arbitrators had quite a, a strong view about things um, and uh, in the way that they handled the issues, quite decisively, I thought were seemingly very experienced and knew their way around this stuff.
1: Yeah, you got the sense that, that they did actually quite a dim view of the speed and performance claims once they once they'd gone through them in in detail. And it's interesting, Jim, to hear you say that that perhaps you don't always see the rigorous analysis applied as to as to the whether or not the weather bureaus have properly inputted the the, the warranties in the charter because um, that's certainly something that you know yours yours look to do when you're when you're bringing a speed and consumption claim or defending a speed and consumption claim you need to make sure that the the evidence you're relying on properly mirrors the the um the, the charge party provisions
2: yeah i mean it's it's certainly my experience and quite often uh with the types of claims that we're dealing with we, we can be dealing with quite complex speed and consumption claims in a small claims um uh, type of context which obviously makes it slightly more challenging Whereas I think in this case, because it was a full arbitration and there was more involved, uh, I think the the arbitrators have perhaps um, deep dived a little further to to really try to bottom things out in uh, in a pretty useful way here.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting point. I I, I think that's right. In my experience, um, often the the time that's needed to properly assess these speed and performance claims is not proportionate to the sums involved. Um, so it it does take. Uh, you know, uh, well-experienced practitioners, I think, to be able to size these up relatively quickly, and even then, you, you've got to still look through the the detail of them. So, I think the starting point for any of these types of claims is is the charter party and 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 the clauses. Um, and we've got two clauses to kind of look at here: clause twenty nine and clause eighty eight of the charter party, and and how the two of them work independently, um, and how they work together, and it, you know. How they sit with each other, I suppose, and that was one of the the, the first issues the the tribunal got into.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it, it, this was one where they they had taken away the the NYP wording. It was it was an amended NYP form. They'd taken away the NYP wording and replaced it with their own clauses. Clause twenty nine, which said that speed and consumption was based on good weather conditions. And then it defined the good weather conditions as up to Beaufort scale four and Douglas C state three, with no adverse current and no adverse influence of swell and then you had the your normal kind of ballast and laden speeds and again you had an eco speed warranty in good weather various different speeds um it, it, it was actually quite a comprehensive speed and consumption clause it did give a number of different um a number of different speeds between mm. about 14 and 11 knots and it, and it gave the corresponding um the, co- the corresponding consumption for each of those speeds um and then you get down to clause eighty-eight. Clause eighty-eight kind of spoke about the independent weather bureau, and it said the charterers can supply independent weather bureau advice from a reputable independent weather bureau as selected by charterers, except WNI and ocean routes uh, to the master during voyages specified by the by the charterers. Um, it then went on the masters to comply with the reporting procedures of the routing service selected by charterers. If, during the currency of the charter party, the speed of the vessel be reduced and or fuel consumption be increased after production to owners of a documented claim supported by the Weather Bureau, charterers shall have the right to deduct from hire an amount equivalent to the time lost and or cost of any extra fuel consumed. Then said that those deductions had to be agreed before they were actually reduced. And finally, in the event of a consistent discrepancy between deck log and weather routing service and in the absence of amicable settlement, the matter to be referred to arbitration. And that's that was kind of the, the way in here because you have these discrepancies about what is good weather and what's not good weather.
2: You certainly do. So it's, um, it's an interesting clause that uh, it, it obviously uh, opens things up to being able to get a weather bureau involved. It doesn't really substantively change anything um, from from the speed and consumption uh warranty itself but it it obviously does open it up to make it a continuing warranty so rather than just purely on at the time of contracting or on delivery it goes on throughout which is obviously what led us to the 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 four the four different claims that were involved during the charter period
1: i was going to flag that because sometimes you see sometimes you see very overtly that this is that you know the warranty is to continue i didn't see that wording at least in the report but but it does you know the the effect of clause 88 has to be that it's a continuing warranty because there's this continuing right to make a deduction from higher
0: yeah but there was still then this question as to whether clause 88 with the weather reports coming in amended the warranty in in any way and that was really the first issue that the tribunal looked at and the tribunal decided that it, it doesn't that the warranty stands on its own it doesn't um you know it doesn't modify or qualify or mitigate or ameliorate the terms of the warranty um, but it does you know, uh, uh, allow or kind of the core function, if you like, of, of Clause 88 is to allow an evidential basis to come in um, and have a discussion using weather reports. And um, if there's a discrepancy, then there can be a debate about it rather it just being kind of black and white. Yeah, so from there, the the tribunal then um, went on to go through four different parts of, of the voyage or four different voyages. The first of those was the... Uh, Albany to Ghent leg and what was interesting about this was that instructions were given by the charterers um, uh, to the master to slow steam and expressly set out in the instructions that they understand that um, this will mean that the vessel can't maintain warranted speed and you know with that opening in the section I'm like where's the claim gonna come from here? And then um, not too long after it, you could see they must have been kind of playing things at, at, the, uh, at the other end of the voyage as to when the vessel is gonna get there and when it's going to be allowed, allowed into berth. And then it's given instructions to hurry up. Um, and so it has 10 days of sailing fast to get there. Uh, and then there was this debate about you know, whether, um, I think it, I think it met, met the warranty in that one, um, but overconsumed on bunkers. Um, and then, you know, they, they wanted to claim the, the extra cost in, in bunkers.
1: You'd not infrequently see eco speeds being without guarantee and speed and performance warranties. I've seen that in some charges. I don't think it was the case here, but you do sometimes see as a matter of practice that the performance speed is warranted and the eco speeds are all, all given without guarantee. On this one, obviously, as you say, there was, there was a kind of acknowledgement that they weren't going to be able to be held to the speed and performance warranties, but later they, they decided they wanted them to be, and that, that amounted to around 22 and a half thousand from higher
2: yeah i mean i i thought it was slightly interesting that they thought it was going to be war- uh, without warranty i mean but you know based on the you know based on the information that we've got it doesn't say that it's um uh without warranty or guarantee guarantee but um even if it does expressly say state I, you know, I've, I've quite often see people try to sweep it aside and claim anyway but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't it really depends on the wording and the context <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's interesting when you see these without guarantee um, without guarantee warranties. Obviously they're not really warranties, but then what what, what is there? what is the what is the intention of those provisions? And one, one area where we've seen them before is if you have a if you have a provision that, that says that the vessel has to be delivered with a clean hull on delivery, and it's not, and as a result it doesn't perform at the at the warranted level um and i've never seen this tested but i think it probably is right the the breach there is is not the breach of the speed and performance warranties or even the without guarantee warranties the breach there is the fact right, that you're delivering in breach of the agreement with an unclean hull
2: yeah it's usually line line 21 22 exactly in, in, in nyp 40 46 and, the, and then you've also got the potential um with it with the general off-hire clause of of it being caught if if the nature of that yeah. fouling is is enough to drag down the performance of the vessel below what would otherwise be expected
1: exactly and then and exactly as you say you're not you're not then looking at whether there's been a breach of the speed and performance warranty because you've already have your breach so you're looking at finding the measure of damages against which that should be assessed so sometimes if you have a without guarantee wording then you can say well we we don't use that as a as a warranty we don't claim against that as a warranty but we do use that to assess our breach where there's been a delivery with an unclean hull for example the ship should have been capable of doing what was you know know, what owners communicated that it could do even if um you know in fact we're not claiming on un- for a breach of that particular warranty
2: yeah i mean it it, it uh, yeah when it comes to the issue of like quite what is you know the the loss caused by the breach it, it can quite get into to murky waters if you're if you're in a position where you you broadly know what the vessel ought to be doing you've got something else but how do you quite assess what the difference is bearing in mind the, the nature of the maritime environment it's yeah, uh, you know, it's not like driving down a road. It's uh it's it's more like off roading, and you don't quite know what weather and currents and uh, you know, other conditions might hit you.
0: And then, so coming on to the second voyage for a grand total of two thousand one hundred and five dollars, uh, <laughs> uh, from Ghent to Ventsbill. There, the the bureau, the weather bureau, in its report, we again we don't know the names of the bureaus here, assessed the vessel's performance in in near good weather, but made no um no allowance for the word about in in the warranty. Uh, and I think that this kind of counted against the charter's whole approach and its reliance on the weather reports, not just in in respect to this particular voyage, but the inconsistency in the way that the, the bureaus dealt with assessing or the criteria for assessing the different periods of overconsumption, um, that inconsistency was a real problem for them. And I think... Um, it didn't help them on the overall uh, picture of trying to establish to prefer the weather reports over what the, the ship's logs and the ship's slip was showing.
1: And this is exactly what you said at the start, Jim. And I think it hits the nail on the head about why this speed and performance claim had so many difficulties. And it's because there was a lack of credibility from these weather reports. When you can, when you see things like, a, you know, the misapplication of uh, about, it's very hard then to say, well, these guys have otherwise, you know, apart from that, the weather reporters have got it perfect. You know, when you start to see a few mistakes coming into these kind of reports, then you need to really iron those out before you put them before a tribunal.
2: Certainly with what we see at the club, quite often people present the reports and it's obvious that the, the report provider has kind of done their own thing um, through... Uh, um, yeah, 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 through through the process, and then there's this back, uh, this gradual back and forth in the correspondence of pointing out all of the things that they've done or they haven't explained that don't quite match up with what what's in the charter. Um, to yeah, to try to, you know, to try to refine things to figure out, yeah, yeah, whether there is actually a basis for a claim.
0: And really, I think we see we see similar points taken again in the the third voyage and the fourth voyage as well. Um, again, both claiming for um over. Over consumption, I think there's a, another point to be made here about how these claims are generally handled. And, and, of course, you'll have seen many of these, Jim, where the reports are provided, there's some back and forth. Um, a lot of it's horse traded out and, you know, settled, finalised and, and get on with things. It's, it's rare, it does happen, <laughs> as we all know, but it's rare to go this far over these types of sums of money um, and in the back and forth, whether it's being handled by someone like Jim at a, at a club or if it does get to us at external um, firms, then we find a way to kind of resolve them. And, and when you look at cases like this, I think it, it's useful to always reflect upon them to, to then know where are the pressure points in a future negotiation. Yeah. You know, well, OK, well, I think that's a really good example of where the weather report didn't uh, focus on the word about um, ignored it and that's it's an easy way to chip away at it right if you're on the owner's side here and there's then a
1: reference in this kind of conclusion of this speed and performance section to london arbitration 2321 you've you've mentioned jim that you're kind of a, that you're aware of that case as well um can we put you on the spot to to uh to talk to us a little bit about that one
2: you, you certainly can um essentially it held that dss um uh it was invented in the 1920s it's a based on a description, rather than a quantitative terminology. Um, it provides approximate wave heights. Um, I think those were only added in around, about 1938. Um, um, so it deals with a, a total sea comprising a, a wind-driven sea waves and swell from a distant um, storm. Uh, in this case, the, the, the particular part of the warranty with DSS-3 maximum 1.25 metres and no swell. Um, so the, the finding effectively limited, um, the, the, the wave height to, to 1.25 meters, uh, despite the arbitrator saying, saying that in his view, based on his own feedback, it probably equated to about 1.5 meters. But obviously the parties have been slightly clearer here, which ordinarily they're not. I mean, if you have something like si- significant wave height instead, which is what the report provider was trying to apply, you do actually have something slightly more quantitative it's it's the average height of the highest one third of all waves but ultimately the 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 point that was driven at in 2321 was that you you can't really equate significant wave height to dss3 so you kind of have to try to apply the wording that you've got uh, and um, a, a, and take things from there.
1: And it's not always easy to work out what the Douglas C state is. That that's kind of what I took away from these from these um, arbitration awards, and that wasn't something that I that I'd quite appreciated um, prior to particularly London Arbitration twenty three twenty one. It's not a quantitative metric, as you say, and it's interesting to hear you say significant wave height might be a better one. I mean, would, is that something you would encourage people to put into their charge parties for better contractual certainty, or?
2: I think yeah, I think from a point of view that it's quantitative. Um, or, or to the extent that you want to yeah. make reference to DSS3, you're actually better off giving a maximum and explaining, uh, are we just talking about the um, wind waves? Are we talking about swell waves as well? Um, or, 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 you know, or, or one or the other quite, you know, quite often there's quite a, there's quite a lot of confusion that's caused. Uh, whereas if you have, if you have something like significant wave height, at least you have, from like the International Weather Organization, um, there are proper guidelines as to how measurements are supposed to be taken to try to figure that out from the bridge of the vessel. Um, and I think I think one of the other points that was made is that the the the, the, the report providers here have actually relied on satellite observations um, from from HiCom. But I think this is one of the points that Luke has trying to drive towards the fact that there was quite a strong view that reading between the lines, the technology isn't quite there to be able to say you know the master or, or you know the chief officer whoever's on, on watch hasn't quite observed correctly yet um and i think yeah i think that uh, yeah that was sort of leading on to the next the next point the fact technology is not quite there so the preference is probably to rely on what the vessel's saying to you know to the extent that um uh, uh, it, 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 it's it's obviously credible.
1: Actually, going back to the clause, I've seen this clause said if there's a discrepancy between the weather bureau and the and the deck logs, then it goes to arbitration.
0: Yeah,
1: which which is good if you're a if you're a lawyer or good if you're in arbitration. But what I've seen a lot in these clauses is if there's a discrepancy between the weather routing bureau and the deck logs, the deck logs prevail. Yeah, and I think that's probably a more normal position.
0: And I think it's also the natural inclination of arbitrators too, is that they'll they'll prefer the evidence of those on board the ship. Unless there is reason to doubt it. Yeah. And, and and sometimes there is. You see that with weather and statement of facts as well. If there's a demurrage dispute because of the
1: because of bad weather, yeah. then you can the statement of facts, if signed, is very good evidence of what the weather actually was, even if you could have weather, you know, historical weather reports that show differently.
0: Yeah. It's interesting that point you make, Jim, about um, about the data. I, I do think eventually we're gonna to get to the point where the technology and the data is pretty persuasive. I, I'm not sure we're there yet uh, as you say and, and I agree um, but I suspect we will get there at, at some point. It's, the, the more that um, we have the you know uh, this tech on board ships, internet improves on ships and all the rest of it. So ultimately um, the charter has failed.
1: If, you, if you're if going to a tribunal with weather reports that are different to the deck logs and, and the weather reports themselves have some inaccuracies then you're on a hiding to nothing
0: really i like the description at the end uh, the the charter is incongruous performance claims <laughs> um so moving on to redelivery i think that was the next Next topic, And as always, we're, we're kind of running over on our time as, as usual. In studios, we've actually got to, you know, think about how much time we're I spending really. on these things, aren't we? <laughs> normally, <laughs> normally at home I have all day. but We have to top it up, top up the, the, the meter. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the, the re-delivery issues. So, so this was about whether the, the, um, the vessel, whether the charterers could re-deliver the ship um, in a state that wasn't as per charter party. Um, pretty well-known principle that that is possible, um, and that the vessel does not have to um, be in a sound condition to redeliver her, um, but that the charterers may be liable in damages for breach of um, the obligation to redeliver um, in sound condition, and that's that's what happened here in, in this section where um, where the the owners were liable in damages. Um, sorry the charterers were liable in damages, but that um, the charters could re-deliver. And the important point here is that by re-delivering, you stop higher. Um, now, interestingly, the, the time that's then spent um, cleaning the hull and getting it back to the condition that it should have been delivered in, the, the time element of it is assessed at charter rate anyway. So, you know, uh, in a way, they still get a, a good component of that at higher rate. Um, and then there's the additional costs, the additional cleaning costs as well. I think it was it was a whole fouling issue, wasn't it? More than twenty days. Uh, uh, exactly. And but do you think
1: that's always going to be at the at the charter rate? I mean, if you had a situation where there was a follow-on charter and the market moved significantly, and the I mean, it's 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 conceivable that the breach could have been sufficient to cost owners significant damages under a follow-on charter, and this doesn't seem to be something that was really argued in this in this case. Um, but that, to me, seems like it could be a direct loss that follows from the from the breach, the breach being redelivering in a, in the wrong condition.
0: Yeah, uh, and, and we've we've had cases like this where you, where you're looking at um, redelivery and the debate about the debate is actually about whether you're going to apply the higher rate or the market rate um and and that can swing drastically if it's been a long-term time charter and you're coming to the end of it the market could be completely different yeah. to where it was during the charter i think i think normally for
1: late re-delivery you have the charge party rate if it's a if it's a straightforward late re-delivery then normally the charge party rate would, would continue to apply i mean there are arguments around it that There's there is a in the context of late re there was there was a suggestion in, in i think the court of appeal case in the in the gregos which was the kind of high the, the house of lord's case on this where where they suggested um, it was it was all orbiter, but there was a suggestion that the that the if there was a situation where the owner had said to the charterer, "I'm going to suffer this loss of this new fixture if you deliver late," then it could be that. There was a separate agreement entered into by the, between the charter and the owner on a quantum merit basis af- following the read or following the originally scheduled redelivery that could then mean that you bypass the normal rules of, um, of remoteness to get, to get into the high market rate that you lost. That, that seems, I mean, it's quite a tricky argument to run, particularly in this case, but it, I don't think it's entirely settled that if you have a redelivery in an unclean condition that you're fixed to the charge party rate i think there are there are some arguments that you can come up with that, that get you around that if there's more damages for an owner
2: yeah i mean that yeah i mean my, yeah my, my understanding is yeah, it is it is going to depend i mean the, the the one thing that i found interesting about this is like you said that uh, they they have awarded the you know the higher rate for the time but then they've awarded the market rate for the additional fuel that's used so there there's a, yeah, yeah. a slight disparity there <laughs> And it's, it's quite what the, the rationale is because the, um, I I think the Y crag was the, was a decision that says, you know, once re-delivery has taken place, you're then off the higher rate for obvious reasons that potentially, yeah, it it could be, yeah, it it could be very unreasonable under certain circumstances with the vessel remaining on higher. But then it becomes an issue as well. Is it actually the higher rate that you were paying that you've lost? Is it perhaps the ability to have fixed? into the market sooner or is it actually caused a detention before you can get the vessel into the next fixture where you would obviously you know know, either possibly a higher or a lower rate and you've been held out of um you you've obviously been held out of that and one of the things that i think was a a bit of a question mark of this one was was quite where was the vessel going next because they the tribunal point out that you know she was yeah, after she's dropped the guards in, um, for Jaira, uh, and then gone to, um, Kofaken for the, the cleaning of the hull, she's then, you know, gone off elsewhere to be, uh, delivered into the next fixture. And it, it sort of raises the issue of, well, was the vessel going to go to the UAE or in that direction anyway before re-delivery? Because, um, uh, it, it's obviously, a fair part of the quantum, the fact that it's, um, DLSOP at, um, at, um, in Pakistan for the re-delivery. And then the vessel steams across, uh, over to, over to the UAE. And the thing is, is she going to, is she going to the Persian, the, the Arabian Gulf for a next fixture? You know, perhaps she was going further down towards South Africa. It may have been that, that, that part of the steaming that was done would have been done anyway um but you know they, 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 you know they don't seem to have really sort of separated out that aspect um i mean everything else is relatively straightforward things like with the cleaning itself obviously it takes a certain amount of time you incur the costs for that so there is a detention the vessel additional expense to clean um uh but but then there's a sort of wider consideration what you know what the yeah you know, the, the actual measure of loss are we potentially overcompensating depending on where you know what the vessel was scheduled to do next
0: and then the next head um and this is a, I think a pretty short one but there was a, a claim in respect of um short bunkers on re-delivery um and it was pretty clear that uh, the vessel was re-delivered without the same amount of bunkers on board as it was delivered there was an obligation to deliver back with the same bunkers as on um Uh, delivery and the debate here was whether the charter should have the benefit of a tolerance even though the charter party did not provide for uh, the word about in in terms of the quantity they said they should get uh, a five percent tolerance tribunal found against them on that and said look there's no about there's no tolerance it is what it is you've got to compensate for the difference of whatever the, the um, Charter party rate versus market rate is on on the cost of those additional bunkers. So I don't I think there's much to say on that. Did you have? I think that covers it. I think we've we're we're pushed
1: we're pushing for time. So let's <laughs> let's move on to the armed guards.
0: Yes, yeah, so the armed guards. Do you want to take that one, Callum?
1: Yeah. So this had this was this um, CP had the BIMCO piracy clause, um, and the owners made the argument that the the armed guards were a measure that was that was being used to minimise risk, and therefore they fall into this BIMCO piracy clause. And they said that time up to the disembarkation of the armed guards at Fujaira was a result of the measure of putting the armed guards on board, and therefore charters were liable for the time and costs up until that departure. Um, and the Charters, however, said uh, essentially that the guards needed to be disembarked at Fujaira because the owners had agreed to take them there as part of their own security contract with the armed guards. Um, um, but I think that the, the charter's argument was essentially you didn't need to take the armed guards all the way to the gyra to to, um, to disembark them. You could have disembarked them sooner, um, and therefore we, we are not liable as charters for the entirety because there has to be some causative relationship between the costs that we're, um, that we're paying and the the kind of heightened risk to the vessel and and cargo and crew and they said there was no heightened risk beyond the point at which you could have discharged the armed guards or disembarked the armed guards um but in but instead you you know you just you, you chose to disembarkment for gyro because of your contract with the, with the security team um and therefore we're not liable for the entirety of these costs
2: yeah i mean i i certainly have a certain amount of sympathy with the with the charges on this because there's always the practical issue of when and where you can um uh, put armed guards back ashore because in some countries you see you, know, you simply can't um and the wording, the wording in the the clause itself i think is it's some um, subclause d um i and it's any time lost taking measures to minimize risk and obviously it wasn't minimizing the risk it itself i think it, i think it's certainly one that's debatable it's um yeah it's, 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 mm. it's the one it's the one thing that jumps off the page uh, out of the issues that are addressed where, you, where you're sort of mm, is that quite right so it's uh,
1: on, on the one hand if you're owners then you say well this was these were the terms that we agreed we had to agree the whole contract with the security personnel to in order to minimize the risk but equally from the charter's perspective i can i can totally see the argument where they say why are we paying all of these costs do we need you know, are we still minimizing a risk here or are we doing something else?
0: Yeah, because it's time lost, right? Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Any comments on the whole failing section?
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's I mean it's it's rel- it's relatively straightforward and conventional in terms of the in terms of the the it's it's very common wording that you see with these types of things. I mean it was I suppose you know part part of the thing evidentially the fact the fact that the the owners were able to sort of provide some good evidence to show that, yeah, actually the, the hold was in good condition before we delivered this in. It, it then sort of begs the question, well, yeah, if it was in good condition when it was charted, it, when it was initially delivered into the service, it's only up to seven months of service. Yeah. You know, most, yeah, you know, most of the stays have been relatively short, but the last one at Binkasim hits the 22 days. So you're two days over the requirements. It's then a, then an issue of the usual practicality if there's an obligation to have a look to see whether there's fouling if there is then there's the obligation to clean um but here for some reason it it, it seems that yeah you know, it hasn't been dealt with it being Kasim um possibly for a number of reasons and um yeah and the uae are often quite a good place um uh to uh, to be able to deal with these types of types of things so you, you can you can kind of understand why you know why there's been the yeah, the perception that, well, question, you know, question mark, has there been the fouling? Well, when you get to the UAE and you inspect, you find that there is the fouling. It's then a question of what the reasonable costs are in terms of, um, in terms of what you can recover for the work that's been done to remove the fouling. Um, and again, sort of tying back into the whole costs of going from Binkasim over to the UAE. It sort of ties in uh, neatly with the, with the issue under the BIMCO clause of whether, you we know, whether or not dropping the armed guards off in the UAEs is covered. And the same issue arises here. It's, it's just like, well, fair dues. The vessel has to steam somewhere. The vessel has been re-delivered. It's probably at the charter rate. Yeah. But has there actually been a loss? Where was the vessel going next? <laughs> Um, I, I, yeah, yeah, particularly one of the things we, we we don't know on the facts whether the vessel took bunkers, but quite uh, quite often uh, Fajera is quite quite a key area that a vessel would go to to take on bunkers anyway before before the next uh, the the next fixture. So um again, I think I think that yeah, this yeah, so, yeah some of the facts that that are missing from what's discussed kind of dovetails in on those on those two issues. Yeah, it
1: suggests there's some operational convenience to owners to go into Fujairah beyond, um, yeah, beyond, beyond simply the need to clean or whatever else it was they were doing.
0: And look, on the next head was a, a damage claim. I think this one can be dealt with relatively quickly. This is a damage to vessel claim. Um, it was found that uh, the charters during loading and all discharging did damage the vessel, um, some of the, the holds. Um uh, but the problem here was that the owners didn't produce an invoice to substantiate their loss. So uh, the tribunal found that, yes, the, the owners would have been able to to make a claim um, had they repaired the damage within a reasonable time after conclusion of the, the charter party and had they produced an invoice, then they could have made out the claim, but they didn't produce an invoice. And so it actually just turned on an evidential claim. Um, basis where they weren't able to pr- prove their loss uh, so that one got tossed and then the last last topic um, is the Mississippi River tug assistance claim
1: as I guess a lot of people know in the Mississippi River you can there, there's some kind of currents that can pull the vessel one way or another and the terminal on this occasion suspended loading because the vessel was kind of moving away from the berth um, and they said to the master you need to bring a tug in before we can resume um, before we can resume cargo operations so they brought in a tug. And the charters deducted the costs of the tug from hire. Um, and at that point, the master witnessed other vessels also needing tug assistance along the berth. And the charters had provided no evidence to show that the crew failed to attend to the mooring lines or disregarded their, their ter- other terminal protocols or, in other, any other way, had failed to um, maintain the you know, sensible mooring protocols or an adequate mooring watch. Um, so the tribunal held that the term, you know, the requirement of the, of the terminal to have a tug um was it, it was to do with the the birth location um you know as, as i said a second ago quite well known that in the in the mississippi river you can have these these tides and these currents um and that that was a, an issue for charterers to deal with because it was a kind of peculiarity of the specific terminal to which charters had ordered the vessel, so it was a, a charterer's risk rather than a owner's risk uh, because you know, all, of the, all of the mooring had been done sensibly, um, so the risk fell on charters. I guess as, as you would expect.
2: Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's something that we see time and again at the club. I mean, uh, obviously the general position is is under voyage charter unless there's express words to the contrary. It's usually the owner's expense and then under a time charter and you know, yeah, unless the crew have done something wrong or it's an off hire event then usually it's uh it, it's um it, it's the charter's expense because it's passing and past of and performing the voyage but you do once in a while see these get quite contentious because um the, the cost of the tugboats depending on how long that they're there can get quite high, and like the value of this dispute, I've I've seen disputes just on this type of issue where you're talking about a quarter of a million dollars in in tugs fees. Oh yeah, in tug fees. Yeah, under yeah you know, under pretty you know pretty poor conditions in the river, and and then one part yeah one party yeah gets stung with a bill, and 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 then
0: certain times of year, you know, uh, after the the ice starts to melt and and, and the river flows, and and it's up there are lots of issues
2: and in, indeed and uh, and the, th- you know, the thing is because the river's nice and deep when the, when all the ice water is flowing in it tends to mean that you can load more cargo but obviously the 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 more cargo you get on board the more the more the the, the sort of high um, um yeah the, the 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 effect on the hull um so the harder the tugs have to push to try to keep you keep you aside so it's um it's a, uh, it's, it often seems quite precarious from a point of view of, of the master having to try to manage this to, 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 to keep the vessel safe, but you know, equally to, to try to load within, within the instructions. But, you know, bear in mind, it's a, it's, it's a busy, it's a busy river and, um, and yeah, things can become pretty problematic if, uh, yeah, if the vessel does come off the berth.
1: Do you think there's any, you make you make the distinction between the voyage charter and the time charter, and obviously in the voyage charter, owners have kind of assumed some degree of the risk over the, the port that the vessel's going to. Um, and I wonder about this, and I also wonder about this in the context of implied indemnities, whether a trip time charter that has very clear loading and discharge ports shifts that burden slightly back towards owners for you know, issues arising at, um, at one of those named ports. Um, Maybe a podcast for another day. That
0: one,
2: I think it is. That, I mean that, that 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 is an that is an interesting one. <laughs> so and answer off the top of the head. Who knows? <laughs>
0: Let's do that. Let's park that one for next time. Um, well, look, the owners overall were pretty much successful. They got one hundred eighty thousand of their two hundred twenty claim, um, and and got costs to boot. Yeah. Jim, thank you very much for joining us. It's been thoroughly enjoyable. Um yeah, we got we got to cover quite a bit in all that. So, yeah, and I'm sure our listeners will enjoy hearing your insights and um, you're welcome back anytime, my friend.
2: That's great. Thanks, Luke. Anything Thanks, Calum. Until next time. I really time. enjoyed it. Take good. care. Goodbye. See you.
0: Bye. Bye.